Good morning, New Life family and all of our new friends on the interwebs. We welcome you to our, our service today. And today is a great day. Uh, today is the day that the Lord has made. And because of that, we're going to rejoice and we're going to be glad in it. And uh, we're excited that you're joining with us. And uh, I just want to start off by uh, just, just following Pastor Carol's lead. This, this is a time uh, of seeking God and before I dive into the Word, I want to pray that, that God would just help us all during this part of the service. Father, uh, we come to you right now in the name of Jesus, desperate for your presence, desperate for your touch. And Father, I pray for your people right now that you would impart courage into them. Father, there is a word from your Word today that you want to impart to us. And I pray, Father, that you would open all of our hearts and minds and our spirit to receive everything that you have for us, and Lord, that we would take that and pass it on to others. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Mike Bro tells the following story about his daughter, Jody when she was in high school and felt called to go to the mission field. She was, in her junior year, she was struggling to find a faith of her own, and she wanted to know in her heart that her faith was her own, that it wasn't her parents, and she was headed down a very dark road, but as her father tells a story, God was pursuing her down that dark road. And when she came to graduation and she, she had established her faith, she t- said to her father, she said, Dad, I don't feel like God wants me to go to college right now. I feel like that He wants me to take a year off and go to Haiti and work in medical missions. And his, her dad, uh, Pastor Mike, was like, Jody, are you sure about this? It, it's 3,000 miles away from home. It's, it's infested with AIDS. This was about 15 years ago. Um, it, it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and it's, it's controlled by, by voodoo. And she said, you know, I, I know all that, but I feel like God is calling me to go and help these, these people. And her father, being the, the great godly father that he said, he said, okay, if you feel like that's God, then we're going to make it happen. And he, he talks about how one of the hardest days of his life was putting his daughter on the plane to Haiti and not knowing if he would ever communicate with her again. He shares how one night he got an email from Jody, and this is what she wrote. She said, Dad, tonight has been the most remarkable night of my life. I got called out to a hut to deliver this baby, and Dad, I've only delivered this one. And I, I, I was with somebody, and that, w- that was when I was with somebody, and she said, I've never done this on my own. They called me. I'm here in this hut. There's a screaming lady on the floor I've got a flashlight, I'm 18 years old, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm here. To make matters worse, when the pregnancy was happening, uh, one of the the leading ladies from the village, who was a a voodoo um, cult leader, walked into the hut and began to to speak incantations and curses uh, in Creole over this lady, and she began to put uh, this voodoo oil on her head, and she says that she put some salve on the baby, on the, the mom's ba- uh, belly as the baby was about to come out, all while cr- chanting and, 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 and just looking at her with evil intent. And Jody said, I, I didn't know what to do, so I just began to, to sing as I was delivering this baby. I just looked back at her, and I, do, I knew she didn't understand English, and I just began to sing, our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Jody said that the the voodoo lady became completely 
unglued. She grabbed all of her stuff and ran out of the hut. And Jody wrote, that night I knew that the baby was going to be born with the blessing of God and not the curse of Satan. But what do you do when you're in a situation that you're not prepared for? Jody Bro found herself in a place where she had no other choice, no other options than to trust God. Life sometimes comes down to pivotal moments when our response will have a huge impact on the outcome. Everyone, regardless of background, regardless of race, regardless of uh, economic status, male or female, everyone can choose how they're going to respond in a given situation. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to respond in faith and not in fear. And listen, it's been an incredible week that is affecting the world in ways that many of us have never seen in our lifetimes. We're in uncharted waters and there's no playbook. And because of the constant bombardment with bad news and sensational headlines, many people are tempted to just give in and get to full-blown panic. And there is a massive response across the world now to this coronavirus of fear that is very distressing to witness. But know this, there is a massive response by thousands of pastors and churches across the globe who are taking a stand right now. And we want you to know on behalf of the New Light Church leadership, on behalf of the elders, on behalf of the pastoral team, on behalf of the staff, we are not afraid. We are fired up, we are engaged, we are ready to go, and we are with you. We are in this together. And instead of focusing on the worst-case scenarios and feeding our fears, we choose to focus on God's promises and feed our faith. So we're not going to fill you with more conspiracy theories or fake news. Our priority as leaders is to fill you with good news. My hope today is very simple. First, I want to strengthen your faith by focusing on God's goodness on His character, and on His power. And second, I want to provoke you to love and good works during this season because fearless faith always leads to faithful action. My main text today is Psalm 46, and as you're turning there, let's review some of the context. You'll notice in the heading in your Bible that Psalm 46 is attributed to the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah traced their lineage all the way back to the tribe of Levi. And during the time of King David, they became great leaders in in choral and orchestral music in their tabernacle. And and these players played an important role in the thanksgiving services and in the pageantry uh, as as the Ark of the Covenant was being brought into Jerusalem. And David formed what might be called uh, today, might be known as a supergroup for song and instrumental music, and and prophesying through these men. And that's what this psalm is. It's addressed to the choir master with a specific tune or a melody. It's it's meant to be a declaration. It's meant to be a celebration. And that's what we're going to do today. Psalm 46, join me in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, 
Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters His voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. One of the biggest challenges we face right now is the lack of trust in the information that we're receiving. There are all kinds of conflicting information coming from literally thousands of different sources. And it's confusing and it makes it hard to know who to trust. And now more than ever, we need discernment to persevere through these challenges. We need discernment and we need wisdom. But most of all, during these times of uncertainty, we need confidence. And that confidence comes when we stand on the firm rock and solid foundation of God's character, His faithfulness, His power, His sovereignty, His grace, His holiness, His promises, His unconditional love. And when we focus on God, we will be unshakable. Verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The psalmist here in verse 1 begins with a clear declaration of who God is. He has no confusion about God's character, about God's ways. And here he uses three powerful descriptors of God. He, he's first described as, as a refuge. God is a He's a, he's a haven, He's a, a place of safety when facing life-threatening danger or storms. Next, God is our strength. He is our source of power, our source of energy. And it's when we are weak that we need to hear and be reminded about God's strength the most. And I know that many of you are feeling overwhelmed and, and very weak right now. And if that's you, you're not alone in feeling that way. Many of God's servants in the Bible expressed their own weakness. The Apostle Paul, when he was faced with an ongoing struggle, he pleaded with God to remove the thorn from his side, his suffering. And he says in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And God's grace is not just unmerited favor. It's not just the gift that we receive that we didn't deserve. God's grace is supernatural power to do what He's calling you to do. And if that means working from home for a few weeks, God's power is there for you. 
If that means taking care of your kids and your elderly parents, that means God's power is there for you. If that means fighting through chemo, radiation, or coronavirus treatments, God's power is there for you. The psalmist goes even further. Not only is God our refuge, not only is He our source of strength, He is with us in our troubles. The text says He is a very present help. The word very is meant to communicate a super abundance, and it's an it's a above and beyond level of presence when we face danger. God is with us. He's with us, and that means that whatever we're facing, we never have to face it alone. If you've ever been to the, the doctor about something that could be life-threatening, you know how alone you can feel in that moment. Uh, I was 24 when I moved to New York City, full of zeal and, and optimism. It, it was an amazing time in my life, and like thousands of other young people, uh, I, I was on an adventure to pursue my dream of acting in TV and film. But when I'd been there about a year and a half, I had a very serious health scare, I found a, a lump in my body that, that sent me into full-blown panic mode. Um, see, my, my father had lost, I'd lost my father to cancer 10 years ago, and that immediately brought me back to that fear and to that pain of that time. And, and if you've ever spent any time in New York, one, one of the ironic things about New York is it's a, it's a city of, of 8 million people, and you could literally be surrounded by thousands of people and feel the most alone you've ever felt. See, I didn't have my family to depend on. I hadn't really made many friends yet, and um, it, it was a tough time. But, but God's grace, my, my roommate from college, uh, dad lived there, and, and he had he'd taken me under his wing. His name was Jack Gold, and he, he was like a foster father to me. And he knew that I was afraid uh, about this medical test, and, and he went to the doctor with me, and he, he walked me through that entire process, and, and I'm forever grateful for that. We need to thank God for our, our earthly parents. We need to thank God for, for adoptive parents, for, for foster parents. They are an expression of God's grace to us, and they are meant to reflect the goodness of our Heavenly Father, who loves us who has adopted us and who's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And this is an amazing truth that we need to internalize, that we need to declare, and that we need to share that God is present with His people in the middle of trouble. And this is all throughout the Bible. Here are some examples. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Matthew 28.20, just before Jesus' ascension, after giving the Great Commission, Jesus says, I am with you to the very end of the age. These promises of God's presence in and with His people are more important than ever. In this season of cancellations, in this season of social distancing and isolation, we need to remember that God is present with us literally in every moment. Now, the psalmist continues here in verse 2, Therefore, we will not 
give, we will not fear though the earth gives way. The psalmist here is making a powerful declaration based on the truth of God's character in verse 1. Therefore, because of this, because of these truths about God's character and God's ways, we will not fear. Now, the imagery here in this passage is one of great calamity and great distress. It's a picture of what we would call natural disasters, earthquakes, mountains crumbling, tsunamis. And the, the image here is one of chaos and, and, and uncreation. It's an undoing of God's creation. And right now, we are in the midst of a major shaking that's affecting the entire planet. The corona pandemic is growing by the day. Financial markets are seeing declines that we haven't seen in generations. Public gatherings are being canceled and the overwhelming, and the result of this is an overwhelming sense of fear that is tangible in our daily lives. You can feel it when you're shopping. You can feel it when you're driving around town. Most of all, lately, you can feel it when you're online. Post after post, article after article, pic endless pictures of empty shelves. It can become a tsunami of fear that crashes over you and affect you and your children, if we're not careful, please hear me. This kind of fear is not from God. First Timothy 1 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And like the psalmist, we can choose. We can declare with our own words, we will not fear. What does that look like practically? Well, first it means responding in the moment with the Word of God. Now, if you've been to New Life at all for any amount of time, you know that we place a huge emphasis on renewing your mind by studying and memorizing the Word of God. And this practice of memorizing Scripture over time builds an arsenal of truth that the Holy Spirit can call to your mind in a moment's notice. Years ago, I was part of a Bible study that was committed to prayer, verse-by-verse -verse study of the Bible into Scripture memory. And it was one of the most fruitful times of growth for me as a Christian. And each week what we would do is we, we would learn a, a new verse, and then the next week we'd have to go around the room and recite the verse and the reference in front of each other in, in the group. And every now and then we'd take, uh, uh, every couple of months we, we'd do a review session. And that, that meant you had to, to recite like the last eight to ten verses, uh, and, and it was a challenging, but, but listen, that discipline drove God's Word deep into my mind and into my spirit so that when trouble came, the Holy Spirit would recall those verses to my mind, and I would speak those verses out loud. And, and it was powerful. It, it, it changed my perspective. It, it boosted my faith, and it often changed me in a way that changed the outcome oftentimes. See, there, there's faith-building power in God's Word. There's faith-building power in God's Word. Now, the second way we can respond is choosing what we accept and what we make agreements with. Now, we hear these stories often about, in our phase of life, about teenagers. And we hear stories about how 
difficult it's going to be and, and how rebellious your kid is going to be and how distant it's going to be and how hard these years are going to be. But just hang on. Just hang on. You, you'll make it if you can just hang on and get to the other side of it. And, and when Becky and I hear these voices and this supposed advice, we get frustrated. And the reason we get frustrated is because people that we care about have made an agreement with a lie that oftentimes becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We don't accept that. We refuse to make an agreement with a lie. See, our declaration is that our relationship with our boys during their teenage years can be rich and amazing. And because we believe that, we pursue that. Because whatever you make an agreement with often becomes a stronghold in your life. 2 Corinthians 10 says, Paul, speaking about this topic, he says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So let me ask you, what, what are you making agreements with? Is it God's truth or is it worldly wisdom? What are you agreeing with in your marriage, with your children? What are you agreeing with about your health? The psalmist here is giving us an example of making a declaration and a confession of faith in the midst of severe trials. The psalmist moves from confidence in the midst of chaos to comfort in the midst of judgment here in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In this passage, the river of life is a theme here that's represented throughout the Bible. It's there in the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. It's present at the end in Revelation chapter 22. And the river is a metaphor of God's blessing and God's nourishment and God's restoration. And here the psalmist says that this river of blessing will call God's people, the people of God who live in the city of God, Zion, to rejoice. And the reference here to the city of God is to, meant to communicate here both a, a present reality for the people of God, but it also points prophetically to the final scenes of the Bible where God will make His ultimate dwelling place with His people. The psalmist is communicating that no matter what happens, God's presence will make His people unmovable and solid. And listen, that's important for us to remember when things begin to unravel in our lives. It, we're, we're in a difficult season right now with lots of unanswered questions. And, and really, one of the most important things we need right now as well is a sense of perspective. We, we live in an age of information overload that causes us to have a very short-term memory. Important stories or discoveries that would have lasted weeks in the news a uh, generation ago are gone in 24 hours. I came across this week a great reflection from C.S. Lewis that was written in 1948 that I think will help us 
get perspective in our current crisis. <coughs> and this was written three years after the end of World War II when the fear of atomic weapons were fresh in people's minds. So as I read this, just replace, I'm going to replace, I want you to think with me, replace the, when you hear the word atomic bomb with coronavirus. This is C.S. Lewis. He says, in one way, we think a great deal, mu- great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed as you are already living in an age of cancer or an age of syphilis or an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents or an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented, and quite a high percentage of us are going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors and aesthetics, but we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. The first point is to be made. This is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're going to all be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, let that bomb when it comes, find us doing sensible human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, chatting to our friends over a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. That's so good. And I think most of us hearing right now would completely agree that in every situation, in every story about danger, we all have a choice about what we will focus on. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And Psalm 46 verse 6 says that the nations will rage and the kings will be shaken at the sound of God's voice. God has no rivals. There is no kingdom, there is no leader, there is no country that will ever prevail against him or his people. And this is a, another Uh, reference to the the presence and the protection of God here. God is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is with us. Here the psalmist uses the phrase, the Lord of hosts, to refer to God as the warrior king who is the leader of the divine angel armies. This warrior king secures his people. He's described as a fortress in a, a place of security in a time of war. A fortress is in ancient Israel, were ideally built on isolated, elevated places. And the reason for that is you were in a position of strength that allowed you to look down on your enemies and gave you a huge advantage in battle. One of my favorite verses along this line is Proverbs 18.10. It says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. That's who God is for His people. It's a powerful metaphor. He's the elevated battle fortress where we go to find strength and security. 
He's the place we go to to get resupplied and find courage for our next battle. Psalm 46, verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. This is God speaking through the psalmist. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The psalmist here in verse 8 invites us to come and behold the works of the Lord. And that term is, is a poetic way of encouraging God's people to remember and celebrate how He has intervened in their lives throughout their history. It calls to mind God's deliverance during the time of the exodus out of slavery in Egypt. It calls to mind God's supernatural provision and leadership in the wilderness. It calls to mind countless miraculous victories in battle. This is our God. This is our spiritual heritage. We are the children of the Most High God, the God who will silence and defeat all of His enemies, and He will make all wars cease. God speaking through the psalmist in verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And I think sometimes when we hear this voice, we, th- we sometimes think God is being calm and gentle. It's like, just be still, relax, know that I'm God. But I think these words could better be translated as a forceful to command to stop, to cease and to cyst. Be still. God is saying, stop striving. Stop trying to do things in your own strength. Stop and know. Stop and experience that I am God. We can close schools. We can restrict travel. travel. We can practice social distancing. And all these things are wise and proper things to do. But only God can heal. Only God can rescue. Only God can deliver. He alone is God. God says, I will be exalted in the nations, in all the earth. God says, when I step in to protect my people from their enemies, I will cause all conflict and rebellion to cease, and I will get the glory. And that is powerful. It's powerful. But another way that I believe that God will be exalted in all the earth is through the lives of His children. Here's what I mean. From our text, we see that God is a refuge. He is the warrior king. He is our very present help in trouble. He is the captain of the divine angel army. He is our strong tower. He is our fortress. And because of that, we will not fear. But please hear me. We go to the fortress, but we can't stay there. Fearless faith should provoke us to faithful action. Jesus says in Matthew 5.14, He says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. 
Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Listen, church, this is our time to shine. God will be exalted when the world sees how we treat each other. And more importantly, God will be exalted when unbelievers experience how we treat them. When we demonstrate the kingdom of God through sacrificial, unconditional love, the light of Jesus shines through us into a dark and fearful world. This is what we've been trained for. This moment. And many times over the years, we've talked or you've heard people preach about this, how sometimes people will notice and see something different in us. And and they'll say, hey, why aren't you afraid? Or how can you have joy or be singing in a time of great suffering and panic? Listen, we all have friends and family who are not followers of Jesus Christ who are watching us right now and how we handle trials and suffering. And I believe in the next few weeks and months, there will be an openness to the gospel that we haven't seen in a generation. At the Last Supper, Jesus told His disciples how the world would know who He was. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What does that look like practically? Here's some things that we can start doing today. First, if you're going to the store, if you're going to Costco or Sam's or Kroger, don't hoard basic necessities. Please only take what you need. That's loving your neighbor. Here's another thing you can do. You can support local businesses. They're in great danger right now, and they need our help. And what, what I've seen some people post online, one of the things you can do is if you don't feel like you want to eat there, buy their gift cards. And you can go back and eat when things have calmed down, but that's going to sustain them, right? Support your New Life family. We have people who own restaurants. We have people that have businesses here. Support your church family. Third, you can check in on the vulnerable, shut-ins, the sick, widows, and you can serve the vulnerable. I came across a powerful story on Twitter this, this week. It's this, this uh, young lady in her 20s. Um, she tells a story of how she went to uh, her, her local grocery store. I don't know exactly where it was. And as she was going, about to go in, she heard a, a lady uh, call out to her saying, young lady, young lady, can you come here? And she had her window barely cracked. And she went over and bent down, and it was an elderly couple. And she said, we've been waiting here for an hour for, for someone to help us. We're terrified to go in there. Would you go get us some groceries? And she gave her a $100 bill. And, and the lady did that. It's an incredible act of kindness. We, we can do that. In fact, we've been talking with, with YWAM Louisville and Andy Landers, and, and they are looking for ways to activate YWAMers while, while they're here to help the most vulnerable, whether it's at New Life or, or in the city. 
And, and we have an amazing opportunity right now to activate our church to love each other and to love our city. And now, more than ever, we get to show the world that the church is not a building. Okay? The church is not programs. The church is not events. The church has always been, first and foremost, a people, a family, a body that give life to each other and to a lost and dying world. And one of the most inspiring examples of this is happening in Wuhan, China, which is the epicenter of the, the origin of the coronavirus outbreak. I read this past week that back in February, um, there was a, a New York Times correspondent, Chris Buckley, who was reporting on the ground ever since everything got locked down. And he tweeted that despite the ap- apocalyptic feel in this, this megacity in quarantine, he said he was surprised to encounter Christian evangelists who were on the streets handing out leaflets packaged together with face masks. Here in the midst of the horror of Wuhan, our brothers and sisters in Christ are meeting practical needs and sharing the gospel. And listen, there are countless stories of people coming to Christ. Because listen, faith that is strengthened in the fortress of God is faith that should activate us to love our neighbors. One last story, and I'll close. William Booth was born on April 10, 1829 in Nottingham, England. Uh, He went on to be a Methodist preacher and evangelist, and he believed that the gospel of Jesus Christ not only transformed individuals, but it would affect society, specifically in how we treated the most vulnerable. He believed that Christians should seek to meet both spiritual as well as physical needs. He and his wife, Catherine, started a small mission that served the poor that would eventually become known as the Salvation Army, which today has a worldwide membership of over 1.7 million and is active in 131 nations. I came across a story of, during Christmas of 1911, Booth was ill and was near the end of his life, and he wasn't going to be able to attend the Salvation Army's annual Christmas convention. And someone suggested to him that he send a telegram to be read at the opening of the convention as a way to encourage the soldiers for their countless hours of serving throughout the holidays and during the cold winter months. And William Booth agreed to do that. So he sat down at his desk and began to compose a telegram. And out of his pen just flowed Uh, easily heartfelt words uh, that he felt would really encourage the troops uh, during this Christmas season. But during the time, telegrams were charged by the word, and he realized that the cost of his telegram uh, was, was because of the word length, was very expensive, expensive. And he was always driven by his passion to have as much possible as to minister to the poor. So he began to edit his message. The paragraph became three sentences. Then the paragraph became one sentence. Booth kept writing and and editing, struggling to summarize his yearly charge into three words. And in three words, it was still too many. Finally, he decided to send one word. He searched his mind and reviewed his years of ministry and seeking the one word that would summarize his mission, his life, 
and what the Salvation Army was all about. And one word that would encourage the soldiers to continue on. It would encourage them to continue to feed the hungry, provide shelter, and win souls on Christmas Eve. And when the thousands of delegates met in London, the moderator announced that Booth would not be present because of his failing health. Gloom and pessimism swept over the convention until he said, hey, I've got a message from him. It's a telegram. And he opened the message, and it said just one word, this one word that would help them get through the night. It was simply the word this, others. What was born in Boo's heart after seeing the homeless became a lifetime of service to others. The soldiers of the Salvation Army were inspired on that Christmas Eve of 1911. And they carried on their work with bravery and with courage and with, most importantly, with compassion. They were able to take their eyes off themselves and meet the needs of others. Hebrews 12.2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you're having trouble turning your eyes away from bad news, look to Jesus, who joyfully purchased your redemption on the cross If you're struggling with fear today, look to Jesus who was faithful to the very end. Today, in the midst of great fear, God is calling us to carry on our work with great bravery, with great courage and great compassion. God is calling on New Life Church to respond in faith instead of fear. But listen, to do that, we're going to have to leave the security of our fortress. Because fearless faith always leads to faithful action.